0: Uh, I really didn't think I was going to make it through. I wasn't able to eat, I wasn't uh, able to sleep, uh, I was really very thin because my, I wasn't eating at all. I really felt like I was slowly going to my demise.
1: Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, the host, and I'm excited today on the line we have Joe Dwyer. Joe is an author, an animal chaplain, a certified pet loss counselor, a dog trainer, and a public speaker. Joe, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, Thank you so much. I appreciate very much you having me on.
1: I'm really excited to talk to you, Joe. I know, obviously, just from the title, you have an incredible passion for animals. You also have your own lived experience with mental illness. And I believe you said, although you really didn't understand and realize much about your depression and anxiety until you were close to 40, but you really feel like it started as a child looking back upon it.
0: That would be accurate. I did. As I look back, you know, hindsight, as the saying goes, is 2020. And as I look back into my youth, there were moments that I really didn't connect the dots until that day came where I, I realized that I really did have an issue dealing with mental health.
1: I think that's pretty common from a lot of the men I've interviewed on this show that they realize once they've been diagnosed as an adult or once they've come to terms with it as an adult, that they look back upon it and realize, wow, I really had a lot going on as a kid and definitely was struggling. When you say that at this point, what kinds of things do you look back at and say, oh yeah, that was depression or that was anxiety?
0: Well, I grew up as an only child and I remember being lonely a lot. And I I believe that's probably common as I've talked with other people who have grown up as an only child. But my loneliness was pretty severe at times and sadness would also be a big part of it. And I really had an awful case of psoriasis as well when I was younger. Uh, They say covered head to toe and oftentimes that's a saying used, but mine was literally head to toe. And, and that didn't help me at all. And it, it precluded me from getting a dog in my younger years. And I wanted one so badly. So I look back at those things that were going on. And it kind of rings true now of what I was going through and kind of connecting it to some of the things now in my adult life.
1: Can you say a little bit more about extreme loneliness?
0: Sure. I, I would feel like I was always alone you know even when i was with people i felt very alone very kind of uh hard to explain but maybe just like on an island you know and and uh, misunderstood or felt like i was you know uh, an imposition to people and it it was a real like uh, troubling thing to have as as youth and i would certainly i was competing in sports and active in school and stuff but I always had this, like, cloud over my head that I was, like, on my own, so to speak.
1: Right. And you mentioned from head to toe psoriasis. And I didn't realize until recently, myself as an adult, just how traumatic having psoriasis can be. Can you give us a sense of what your psoriasis was like?
0: Oh, it was uh, really unsightly, you know. I still have patches every so often, usually in the change of seasons. But when I was younger, I really did. I had it in my head. I had it on my face. I had it on my arms. I had it on my torso. I had it on my legs all the way down to my feet. A scaly, uh, very unsightly rash, uh, in, on my body. And it was, it was really, uh, and then it would itch. It was hard not to scratch it, you know? So In school, I became known as the creeping crud, which was not easy to deal with. Uh, Although I was athletic, I was told, no, you're not going to compete because if you sweat, that's going to be even worse. And, uh, you know, it really, it was a difficult thing to deal with as a child.
1: They said for your own sake, you weren't going to compete because sweat would make your psoriasis worse for you? Or were they concerned about others?
0: I believe the... uh, the, it was said as if it was not good for me, but I think the truth was it wasn't good for others.
1: Right. And it would be scaly and then kind of flake off and, and painful.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. It would get painful. I mean, you know, it actually bleed sometimes because it, I would scratch it. I mean, it would be hard not to scratch it because it was so itchy. Uh, it was worse during the change of seasons. Um, most often, in the drier weather. So summertime, it was a little bit relieved. But other than that, I had it all year round.
1: And from what age to what age was it so bad?
0: I would say easily from the time I could remember. So probably two or three years old. And it really didn't start letting up until I was in my 20s. Wow. And
1: yeah. and just knowing how brutal and nasty kids could be, I would imagine, like you said, I mean, kids called you the creeping crud.
0: Yep. That was, uh, it stuck. It was a name that stuck to me, unfortunately. And
1: that was a name like not just one or two kids called you, but many kids.
0: Yes, they did. And you know, we live now in today's day and age where kids would be told not to say that. But, uh, when you're talking about 50 years ago, uh, they weren't told not to say those things as readily as they are today. Right.
1: So, so. you, th- so you think, uh, the adults even heard or knew that kids were calling you that and just, intended oh. to ignore it or not intervene.
0: Oh, I know they did. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: So that obviously is a form of bullying. Were you bullied in other ways?
0: Uh, I, I can't remember other ways since that one was so prevalent, but there may have been other ways that I just don't recall. But that one is certainly something that sticks out in my mind.
1: And I've heard stories about person with psoriasis just stepping into an area, and then people backing away or moving away. And did you find that people didn't want to touch you or sit by you as well because of the psoriasis?
0: Definitely, happened often. Really? Yes, it did.
1: And then yep. that that must be pretty damaging as a kid.
0: Well, it really was, and it, and like I said, especially because I, I did have you know a fairly good athletic base and foundation, and. I was able to compete, but then I was told I couldn't and I was limited there. And then, you know, had my struggles in school like we all do, or most of us do anyway. So it really was a, uh, you know, it started to pile up.
1: Were you able to create a group of friends at all? Did you have any friends growing up and through elementary school, middle school, high school?
0: Oh, yeah, I did. I did. I had, I had friends as I went through school and, uh, you know, it, that was helpful.
1: Would they tend to support you if you were getting bullied, or were the bullies savvy enough not to do it around your friends, or what was that like?
0: I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, they were savvy enough not to do it around my friends, and uh, most of my friends were on the quieter side, so they weren't the type to step up and defend me.
1: Right. Were you able to share these struggles you were dealing with with anybody, a social worker at school, your good friends, your parents?
0: No, I I uh actually uh I I shared it with a stuffed dog and uh then when I finally got my dog in uh, age 12 I shared it with him. That was all I shared it with. <laughs> okay. Truthfully.
1: Yeah. Wow, so really keeping that all bottled in. Yep. Were you continually going to school showing up at school? Grades were okay?
0: Oh, I I showed up every day. It was uh, no alternative. I was I I call it a good thing that I was you know, got from my parents. The, you know, keep marching forward, kind of thing, and and keep keep going and trying in school, and you know, work through slight illnesses and stuff like that. And I I credit that today to trying to keep that attitude going and in my life today. But um, yeah, and I I did the best I could in school. I was not uh, grades didn't come easy to me. I had to really work for them.
1: And was there no kind of medications at the time for psoriasis?
0: Yeah, anything that I was taking, whether it be orally or topically, on really didn't work. I mean, it was um, water pistol on a forest fire, as the saying goes. It really wasn't helping at all until I got to my early 20s and, and a doctor finally gave me like some uh, UV light treatments that finally helped.
1: Okay. Man, and that as well must have been so damaging to your mental health you must you know you finally get a new medication and think all right this is going to go away and nothing happens
0: no nothing worked at all i could remember as a child going to multiple doctors and taking multiple medications and nothing really worked
1: so it sounds like your parents were definitely on board with trying to get you help for your psoriasis though yes they were yeah And then you mentioned that you got a dog at age 12, and and earlier you had said you couldn't get a dog, and was, was that somehow related to the psoriasis, and how were you able to finally get a dog at age 12?
0: Well, it was definitely related to it, at least that was my recollection, because every doctor that I went to, and I went to so many I can't even remember, can't keep count, but they all said the same thing, that it would be at least, if not brought on by dog hair, it would be certainly irritated by dog hair. And then I clearly remember going to one doctor, I was probably about 12 years old, and the doctor, I asked every single one of them, and I asked this doctor, could I get a dog? And he said, well, I will tell you that if you get a real short-haired dog that does not shed, then yes, you can. And I pressed my parents to the to the mat on it and said, "Well, yeah, <laughs> you kept telling me to ask." Well, he said yes, so now I have to get a dog, right? And and I finally did.
1: Wow! Yeah. And if you had never had a dog before, is there w- what made you such a dog lover?
0: I my first friend was I was two years old and I remember living in an apartment in the same town I live in now in New Jersey. And I remember looking out the window and there was a dog in the neighborhood and I used to run to the window to see him and I used to run outside. He was the, gave me comfort. He gave me some companionship, uh, brought me some, you know, some love. And uh, so I could remember from that far back just being attracted to dogs.
1: Right. And do you remember the very day you were able to get a dog and, and actually receive that dog?
0: Oh, I sure do. And tell, us,
1: tell us about that day.
0: Well, that day was uh, right around Easter time. It was in April. And I remember it was um, a dog in a pet store. Done a lot of rescue now later in my life. But these days, uh, you know, now almost 50 years ago, you know, puppy mill dogs and dogs from pet stores were not a, as big an issue. And uh, he was a, a, a dachshund, you know, and his short hair. And I remember going to the pet store and bringing him home, and uh, it was great. It was great. I I actually never really referred to him as my dog. I referred to him as my brother until the day he died.
1: Wow, that's awesome. What was your your dog's name?
0: Uh, His name was Fritz, actually. Okay. All right.
1: And obviously, that was a huge moment in your life. And how quickly would you say that owning Fritz impacted your mental health and in what ways?
0: Well, you you know, he, he was a real, uh, tough guy. I mean, he was only a little dog, but he had epilepsy really bad. Um, when he was, we determined that when he was very young, but I watched him like battle through that. Like it was not even a small issue to him. Um, he'd have terrible seizures. He was on medications, but he'd still have seizures. But I remember just saying, what a tough little guy he is. And if he could tough out th- something like that, then, you know, he's teaching me to tough out some tough things, too. So uh, that's uh, our relationship was built on a lot of love. But I really respected him for for battling through his illness.
1: Yeah. For his resiliency, it sounds like.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And what was that like as a 12, 13 year old and seeing your dog? deal with seizures like in my mind that must have been so scary the first time
0: it was very scary and you know every time he had them and they'd come out of nowhere as unfortunately that disease does uh, it it would be very frightening I didn't know whether one time it might take his life so it was very disconcerting Um, but like I said he had this inner strength uh, that was really something to admire so You know, that kind of overrode everything.
1: Right. And you had to be given him meds and everything.
0: Yes. Yes. He had to take uh, Dilantin actually every day. Yeah,
1: Wow. So then uh, you make it through high school. What happens next in your life?
0: I make it through high school. I go through to college thinking I wanted to be a veterinarian, but I really didn't have the grades to do that. So I actually ended up with a degree in chemistry And I spent two years as a chemical engineer and then decided that that wasn't for me because I really wanted to advance in the business world. And without a PhD, you weren't going anywhere in the chemical research or engineering field. So I left and went to on to Bell Atlantic and now Verizon and worked my way through that company and did a lot of work in sales and labor relations and And really did really well in business and went on from there to be like a chief operating officer at the Archdiocese of Newark.
1: Wow. And at that time, how was your mental health and uh, and had the psoriasis Had you received the something uh, medically that, you know, made that subside?
0: Finally, it did. I I was told by a doctor that I saw in my probably when I was around 20 years old in college that He gave me some UV light treatments, and it did help it tremendously, more than anything that ever did. He also then assured me that he felt that as I got older, it would get better, and he was right. It did. So thankfully, although I still have little bouts of it here and there, I don't have anywhere near the severity I did.
1: Wow. So are there times where your body is completely free of psoriasis?
0: Almost, yeah, uh-huh. with the exception of a little patch maybe in my foot or somewhere like that. That's about it.
1: Right. Yeah. Wow, pretty incredible. And are you on medication still for it then?
0: No, no. Okay. I, I actually did, I haven't taken any medication for it since I saw this doctor when I was about 20 years old.
1: And you don't do the lights anymore or anything to, no. to keep it up? Wow, that's pretty incredible. Is that uh, common that as you get older it, it dissipates?
0: Well, this doctor seemed to think that it would do that for me. He was right. I do know that it doesn't work for everyone. Uh, Unfortunately, my daughter has it, and uh, she's now 28. And unfortunately, she has it probably hereditary from me, and uh, she's still fighting a cure for it and getting done.
1: There must be a variety of medications, but some work better than others, and I would imagine the whole deal of side effects and so forth.
0: Yeah, exactly, and then there's risks to some of the medications as well, and so,
1: right. Yeah, so tell us when you were working with this company, how was your mental health at that time?
0: Well, actually, it, it, it I thought it was good. Um, I, I would feel anxious at times, but I didn't really attribute that to anything. Um, matter of fact, it's an interesting story. When I was working my way up through Bell Atlantic, I had a coworker that I became very close with. And she actually followed me into the other company to the archdiocese when I went there. And she was a tremendous person. And her husband, uh, had a severe case of depression and we'd be working on a lot of projects. The You know, we'd be working on a lot of uh, labor relations, negotiating the contracts for the union management relations and all those things. And we'd be putting in a lot of hours. And she'd oftentimes tell me that she'd have to go home because her husband was battling depression. And I would actually never said it to her, at least at the time I never did. But I would sit there and let her go. I'd say, of course, no problem. Yes, you need to do that, of course. But in the back of my mind, I'd be saying, listen, that's a bunch of nonsense. All you need to do is get up off the couch and get yourself back into the game here. You know, what's he doing? Just sitting home. I mean, this is ridiculous. And of course, I was very humbled when I was walloped with it only a few years after that.
1: Right. So you clearly, just as I did, had some pretty negative perceptions of depression before you really, like you said, got hammered with
0: it. Yep. I always say I'll be the first to admit it, put my hand up and say I was as ignorant as they came. Yeah.
1: And you said you were dealing with just a bit of anxiety, but didn't really notice any depression. So when did it hit you and was it kind of did it gradually creep up on you or how did your depression show up?
0: I was on my way to do a talk on a Sunday morning uh, from my home. And I remember I was walking through the kitchen, just having breakfast and getting myself together and going through my motions to get out of the house. And I remember feeling as if my head was being filled with ice cold water. I started to shake. I I couldn't even function, and I actually crumbled on the floor, and I just was a absolute bowl of jello for two weeks. I actually went and did the talk that day. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. I came home and I spent two weeks on the sofa, just like complete out of it.
1: Wow. So you realized it one morning. How about prior to that? Was it almost as though you were completely depression free until that morning when you were reflecting on your emotions?
0: Yeah, that may be something I'd be able to think was going on. But as I look back, just no different than I look back many years later, if I look back to kind of the weeks leading up to that, I could see myself not being myself, um, but just didn't really have the ability to put my finger on it and know that something was really wrong with me.
1: Right. And you had never... Well, you had dealt with some depression, you believe, as a kid, too, though. Yes. Right. Yes. And and when you say you look back and realize that the weeks prior, you were a bit different. Can you describe what you mean by that?
0: I, I could just remember uh, It was. It, it's actually a, a little bit foggy, truthfully. Uh, and I'd say it's more than weeks. Uh, I said weeks, but I'd probably uh, associate maybe even months before it. I maybe was just a little bit on edge. I was a little bit more like not myself, not my confident self that I felt I was, not, you know, as focused as I as I usually was, maybe a little bit more irritable.
1: Right. It's interesting. Those are all definitely signs of depression and some that people don't even really realize, I think, like irritability, certainly, especially for men can be a symptom of depression and people don't really realize that. Uh, Um, And uh, a couple of the other ones you mentioned as well. So this big day hits, tell us about the, you you go and you give a talk and then you said two weeks on the couch. Yeah. What were those two weeks like? And give us a sense of what you were feeling and what you were going through for those two weeks.
0: Uh, I really, Didn't think I was going to make it through. I wasn't able to eat. I wasn't uh, able to sleep um, for any length of time, maybe 15 minute intervals of sleep. Uh, I was really very thin because I wasn't eating very much leading up to it. And then I wasn't eating at all. I really felt like I was like seeping out of the world. You know, I was like slowly going to my demise. Um, I could still remember it very vividly. Um, I actually still live in the same house where I was when that happened. And I go down in that room, but every time I go down in that room, I think about it. That's where I was for two weeks in that one room.
1: Like literally you didn't go up to your bedroom to sleep at night.
0: No, I, I, I may have gone, uh, one or two time, one or two nights, but that was I don't even remember. But if I did, it was only one or two nights.
1: And and not going up and joining your wife for or kids for dinner or anything.
0: Nothing. I was. Uh, I I know that a friend at the time took me finally to a. At the time, my doctor, my therapist. I remember going there one day, and I could barely remember getting into her office, but. I remember going there,
1: but so a friend brought you. Yes, and you had a therapist to go to already.
0: I I knew of her. I had I had done some work with her actually in the job that I was in, so I knew who she was. Okay, and yeah, so that's how I knew who she was. But she was.
1: hadn't been seeing you as a therapist. No. Okay, and then how did your friend know you were in such a dire situation, and what was it that led your friend to bring you to a therapist, which is amazing by the way what a fantastic friend
0: yeah my wife called him at the time okay
1: Mm -hmm. so your wife obviously knew what was going on Yes, not seeing you and did your wife try to communicate with you much
0: she did she still does she's my rock through all this and I am very very fortunate to have her in my life she is uh, as good as you could be in her role as a supporter
1: And so how did she handle two weeks of you on the couch, and how did that impact her?
0: I'm sure, I know, I'm not sure I know, she was concerned, she was worried, you know, but she was there for me, you know, Uh she she was there.
1: And she called a friend, which was a great move, and your friend just essentially came over and said, hey, we're going to get you into a therapist, or?
0: Yes. Okay. Yep. So...
1: And then tell us about the time you met with the therapist. I know you said it was somebody you who you knew a bit from work. What was that first time like? And, and did you just have to go in and explain, I've been on the couch for two weeks and I don't know what the hell is going on?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, that's how it started. And then as we started to delve into things, I, I started to see her regularly. And she did... Prescribe medications for me, none of which really worked very well. Honestly, I got the side effects, but I really didn't get much of the positive effects and she was really racking her brain trying to find, you know, the right medication to give me. And, um, but she was also very helpful in, in dialogue as well. And, you know, I, I went to her for quite some time up until probably about two years ago. And now I've shifted to EMDR.
1: Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Can you explain? So you went to her, your friend brings you to her one day. I can't imagine, and and I'm a strong believer in talk therapy, but I can't imagine one session and you're suddenly off the couch and up and doing fine. So
0: Nowhere near it. Right. So
1: did you go back and hit the couch again and wait for another week to see her? Or what was your progression of recovery through that depression?
0: Well, I, I had a very, um, you know, very, uh, you might, some might call it important job. I think what I do now is more important, but <laughs> that's another story. But I had responsibility for about 300 employees. So I felt the need to try to get myself back to my office and, and do my job. So I was trying to get there for an hour two hours a day, as much as I could at the time, and and seeing her probably, I was seeing her, I, I believe weekly at the time as well. So it was many sessions before we started to uncover some of the issues that I was dealing with. And like I said, you know, her background was to try to give me the medication doses or mixtures that would, would help, but nothing was helping.
1: Right. And you'd go into work for an hour or two uh, in the beginning, it sounds like. And and what would you tell people at work? Were you open about why you were leaving and why you could only stay for a short
0: time? I wasn't at the time, no. I I just, nobody asked me that. I guess, you know, since I was kind of the boss, like nobody asked, which was good Uh, And at the time. uh, Eventually, it was kind of realized what I was going through, but I wasn't open about it in the beginning.
1: And can you dive into that a bit? Why I I was the same way for a long time. I didn't share about my depression and I was, you know, an administrator in a school too and responsible Mm -hmm. for many people. What was it that prevented you from sharing? And, and were you ever able to share and talk about it with folks at work?
0: I was, it it took, Probably two years or so, I'm guessing. And I could only attribute it to just being stubborn or, you know, I guess there's a couple of different words you could associate with it, whether it's stubborn, whether you want to call it macho, whatever it was. I just really didn't want people to know, Uh, didn't want them to interpret it as a weakness. Mm -hmm. You know, there were a lot of things that were going through my mind to not want to be open about it.
1: I think the word that comes to my mind and you can, you know, certainly tell me if you disagree but it was definitely a part of my depression is shame. Yes, definitely. And I, definitely. I I think that's a big part of it, you know, like and like you said, being perceived as being weak, somebody who can't handle it and so forth. For me there was certainly a lot of shame around my depression. So gradually you got back to work, you were doing the talk therapy. And then did you stay with that job with that company for a long time?
0: No, I left there about 10 years ago. Okay. I did. And That's when I decided I wanted to go out and do uh, public speaking and I wanted to get more involved with saving animals.
1: Right. Which is awesome. So were you at a point with that organization where you had been pretty well recovered with your mental health before you left or were you still in the midst of your depression?
0: I'd say I'm still in the midst of it now, so Okay. I I would say that I was still in the midst of it then. You know, I guess maybe everybody's different, but it, it's like it's like a river, right? Sometimes the river is roaring, sometimes it's calmer, but it's it's always moving. So I, I feel that's the way I am with my depression. I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to say in my lifetime that it's gone for good. It gets better, thankfully, but
1: and would you say it, would you consider it a daily struggle? Like you don't know one day from the next and it might just appear and you might become depressed and then you, and what tools do you go to then if it is like that?
0: Well, I, um, I do think it is a daily, no, I know it's a daily struggle. It still is. I would like to see the day when it's not. Some days are very good and some days, you know, it's kind of got, like getting hit with a boomerang in the back of your head. You don't even see it coming. Um, but the, the tools I use now, I try to use a lot of meditation. Um, I'm very into martial arts. I try to do – mix some martial arts moves with meditation. Um, I only i only have one dog now. We had five at one point. Wow. But, yeah. But um, – he he keeps me sane and my wife keeps me sane i have a, a small circle of of go-tos <laughs> okay but, um, yeah
1: what would you say one of your really bad days might look like
0: you know i i i just had one today is monday i had one saturday and i woke up feeling pretty good i had some talks i wanted to work on my wife and i had a um, a veg fest. We, we do a lot of, uh, vegan eating now. And I went, you know, we were going to go to one of a veg fest type event. And all of a sudden I just, I started to feel anxiety coming on. I started to feel the depression coming on. I get very like angry and I get very, um, you know, frustrated with it. And it's like, a you know, as the saying goes, a slippery slope, and I started to feel horrible and I was able to pull myself out by evening. But, you know, I, I phrase it as I lost a day, you know, right? I didn't get a whole lot done. And that's then it's like a, a vicious circle of feeling like I mean, it's another day. I didn't get anything done. And right. I get pretty frustrated with that. So
1: so this might be tough to answer, but can you share with the listeners what it means when you say like you feel the depression coming on? Like, what is it? Is it a body sensation? Is it your, the emotion?
0: It's an emotion. It, 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 for me, it, it's, it's, uh, I lose my sense of peace. Like I have a, a, a sense of peace. I feel good. I feel content. And then all of a sudden I start to feel not good. Not, I feel worthless. I feel down. I feel like I can't do anything. I feel like I'm too old to now start this, what I want to do. And, and it just kind of like piles on and piles on and piles on. And, um, it's more like a mindset type thing. And, you know, it's a battle. I call it a battle. You're battling yourself.
1: Right. And you no longer go to therapy. It sounds like.
0: I do. I see, I do see a, uh, EMDR therapist.
1: Oh, that's right. You mentioned that. So what was the previous therapist's style of talk therapy?
0: Well, she would, you know, she would talk to me about my past and, you know, things that were going on currently and the triggers that would come up that would make me uh, start to not feel well. Uh, and then when she got to a point and I, you know, saw her off and on for probably 10 years, when she got to a point where she realized that the medications weren't really effective for me at all, she recommended that I go to see the EMDR therapist. And that's been for the last three years. Okay.
1: So I'm wondering, did you um, ever explore CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy?
0: No, I did
1: not. Okay. So the CBT is really around your thought patterns. And you just made me think about it when you discussed how a bad day may be and you start feeling bad and then you beat yourself up about it. And CBT is really about stopping those thoughts. What was her reason, I'm curious, about recommending or referring you to a therapist around EMDR?
0: Well, actually, she thought, and and actually my EMDR therapist does do some of the CBT work with me. Okay. So I do get some of the value of that and she thought that would be a value as well as the EMDR. She thought that I was non-responsive to medication and she thought I'd be better served by seeing the EMDR therapist.
1: Okay. My understanding and I could be off here a bit too is that EMDR is typically used for people around recovering and dealing with PTSD.
0: Yes, that's true. But it's not limited to that. So and and she does kind of explain it as PTSD because of some of the things that went on in my childhood and the psoriasis and stuff like that. So. Right. So she kind of brings that makes that connection.
1: Yep. And that makes sense. Can Can you describe what EMDR is for those people who may not understand EMDR?
0: Yeah, it's it's really um, a reframing of your thought patterns. It really brings like instead of going down a thought pattern of the post-traumatic stress and and all that did happen, it's to reframe your thoughts into a better place. And, you know, there's some techniques to use uh, tapping of the feet, you know, to try to like reprogram your brain. Um, There's the butterfly hug that she's taught me, which I don't do as often as I should to try to like just calm yourself. There's also uh, she has really brought like my dogs into it and realized how much they're helpful to me and my rescue efforts and to build myself into a place of feeling more confident and more positive about myself through those type of things.
1: Right. And you mentioned the tapping of the feet. One thing that was a piece of EMDR from my understanding is that there always is kind of either the tapping of the feet or tapping on your legs or holding um, objects that maybe vibrate so that you're always kind of tapping into the sensory part of your brain while doing talk therapy.
0: Yes. And I, I have to admit that although... She's wonderful. She actually teaches. She instructs people to be EMDR therapists. Uh, I'm I'm not the easiest patient. I'm the first to admit that I'm stubborn, uh, and you know, so I have to keep reminding myself to do these things. You know, I don't treat myself as well, (laughs) so to speak. You know, Um, so anyway, but yeah, all those things work work pretty well when you do them consistently.
1: Right. So you mean do them consistently outside of therapy?
0: Yes, exactly. Okay.
1: Right. And what would be some examples of the things that you believe you should be doing outside of therapy that would help you?
0: Well, you know, a perfect example would have been Saturday. So the butterfly hug, I don't know if you're familiar with it, is put your hands on your shoulders, cross on your shoulders, not right to right, right to left, left to right, and just kind of like – center yourself, bring yourself back. And I, I should have done that in hindsight. I should have done that Saturday when I started to, uh, as I put it, go down the tubes, but I didn't, you know, because I just get, I get a little too flustered too quickly. So yeah, I have to be more consistent at the activities that she's giving me to do.
1: Right. So tell us now, I know you mentioned that even through therapy, your therapist realized, too, just how important dogs and animals are to you, and you've pretty much turned that into your life work, haven't you?
0: I have. Uh, most of my motivational talks are based around them, and um, that's, uh, that brings me a lot of joy.
1: Tell <laughs> us, uh, what do you mean by your motivational talks are about them?
0: Well, I've had many dogs in my life, but there's one that uh, she saved my life. The day that I was going to take all the pills and swallow them, uh, she somehow convinced me not to. She was a bait dog for fighting, and she was a a pit bull. Uh, She uh, was almost certainly a bait dog, which they take the sweetest dogs and they throw them in the ring with the fighting dogs to build their confidence And somehow she survived, but she was really in bad shape, and she was brought to a shelter, and she was gonna be euthanized, and I brought her home. Uh, She became our fourth dog at the time, and she uh, was a wonderful, absolute sweetheart, and I trained her to be a therapy dog. And she and I went on therapy visits for 10 years, And she was just my rock and unfortunately she passed away in February of this year which was very difficult for me but you know I wrote a book about her it's called Shelby's grace Uh, that was her name Shelby and she just came from the absolute depths of despair and turned it around and helped others and to me she's my inspiration
1: yeah that's pretty incredible was was that the first book that you authored
0: Yes, it was.
1: Uh-huh. Yes. And so your motivational talks are around the importance of having dogs in your life?
0: Well, I, I've used Shelby's story as how to rally back from adversity and, you know, how to help others. Even when you're, you think you have it bad, you could help others. You, you'll help yourself type of message. And, uh, you know, she's just uh, an incredible motivator for me from that perspective. So I, I've developed a couple of different talks about her, as well as the uh, one uh, guy that still lives here with us. His name is Daniel. And Daniel's a pretty famous dog, actually. In 2011, he was put into a gas chamber with 17 other dogs. And that's how they unfortunately dispose of them in shelters when they're unwanted in many states in the, in the country. He survived somehow and he's known as the only dog to have survived when others did not. He came to live with, uh, with us. He became our fifth dog at the time. Now he's our only dog, but we actually traveled the country and promoted adoptions. We helped groups close down the gas chambers in certain states. We were, on talk shows, we were on a float in the Rose Parade, and I've used his story for you know knocking out toxins in your life and how to have a good attitude because he's the happiest, go lucky dog I've ever seen.
1: Wow, that's a pretty incredible story.
0: Yeah, he he's really amazing. His name is Daniel, and he's named for uh, Daniel in the Lion's Den. So
1: all right, awesome. Yeah. And you also are a certified pet loss counselor and an animal chaplain yes and tell us about that I, I had never even heard of an animal chaplain
0: yeah well it, it's it's an amazing thing it, it's very uh kind of a new area if you will especially with a lot of people moving away from organized religion and you know a lot of animals not accepted in certain religions except for one day a year maybe for a pet blessing or something And if you call some clergy in some religions, we won't get into specifics, but, and you say that your dog or your cat died, they're going to tell you that they're not coming out, but an animal chaplain will. Uh, I went through training to be a a human minister for years. I did that for 10 years, but then I did training in uh, an animal chaplain course and I've done funerals for pets. I've done pet blessings and I actually train people. Uh, to become animal chaplains uh, for various different uh, services that they could do.
1: So there's actually coursework in becoming an animal chaplain.
0: There is. There's different organizations that have presented coursework, and I actually have my own that I developed.
1: Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, And you're a dog trainer, is that correct too? I
0: do. I do dog training. I don't do it actively as much. I did that more about 10, 15 years ago. But if somebody calls me, I could do the basics. Okay. If there's something that's severe, like a, a an issue with aggression or something or a real behavioral issue, I usually recommend them to friends of mine. Okay. Uh, yeah, but I, I know the basics of how to, how to work with a dog and basic commands and stuff like that.
1: And, and I think this one's pretty self-explanatory, but tell us a bit about being a certified pet loss counselor.
0: Well, there, too, you know, a lot of people when it comes to the loss of a pet and we lost three in 11 months here, Shelby being the last in February of this year. uh, It's a disenfranchised loss in our society uh, for the most part. Uh, People don't give it obviously the same attention as when we lose a human uh, family member. But the loss is severe. It's very difficult to deal with. And people will say things like, well, just go get another one, you know, just go get another dog. Well, you wouldn't tell somebody to go get another brother or get another child. And, you know, it's people end up being, you know, really have major effects from the loss of a pet. So I studied pet loss counseling and went through some coursework on that about 10 years ago. And I I do try to help out there, especially it's connected to the animal chaplain work that I do.
1: Okay. That's what I was going to ask. And right. and that one, I mean, the the animal chaplain too, I mean, it's new to me. So of course I don't have quite a grasp on it exactly, but the pet loss counselor makes so much sense to me because you hear people say all the time that their their dog is like a family member. It is a family member. And there's an incredible love and connection between family members and their dogs. And yeah, the, uh, the humans are definitely going to go through some type of grieving when they lose an animal like that.
0: In most cases, I've had, I can't tell you the number of people who have said to me, you know, I feel awful because when my father, my mother died, I didn't have this level of grief. Wow. And yeah, I've had so many people say that to me. And I turn back to them and I say, listen, that's, you, you should not be indicting yourself, you know, um, it, it, it's a connection, it's a deep connection, it's a bond that you form with this dog, with this cat, whatever the species may be, and you, they're they're your family, they're, you know, no one's, no, there's no uh, criteria for what a good relationship is, uh, it could be on two legs or four legs, right? Right,
1: Exactly. <laughs> So typically, if you're going to counsel somebody around losing a pet, is that a one-shot deal? Like you meet with them one time for an hour or is that several weeks, once a week? Or what does that typically look like if there is even a typical?
0: Yeah, it's not really a typical because each situation is different. I've spoke to people for one time and I've spoke to people for multiple times. It all depends on the person. It depends on the depth of the relationship with the pet and many other factors in their life. So it really, you know, some of them can, I I have one friend and he's a friend now who, you know, lost his dog and he was able to get another dog within a month's time. But that doesn't apply to everybody. Uh, It's, you know, grief is as unique as a fingerprint. So everybody deals with it differently.
1: Yep, absolutely. And do you see that as your main role then? Is it helping people understand the grieving process and walk through that grief process?
0: Exactly. You know, you're really just guiding them through it. They have to go through it on their own. You're just guiding them through it. The first thing that I do with every single person that I... Yeah, I have the opportunity to to work with in a pet loss situation is to affirm their feelings because, like I said, some of them will say, "I I, I shouldn't be feeling this way. It was a dog. I shouldn't be feeling this way." No, you, sh- you it's okay. It really is. And um, you know, once you tell them it's okay to feel the way you're feeling, whether it's anger, sadness, whatever it might be, you know, a light bulb goes off. I think in their head, it's like, okay, and and I think the rest of it becomes a lot easier.
1: Yeah. Oh, I can imagine that. So tell us, uh, you do have a website?
0: I do. Um, actually, its what encompasses everything that we've talked about, my animal chaplain program, my motivational speaking. It's noblestrength.life.
1: noblestrength.life. I think I found you also at JoeDwyerSpeaking.com.
0: Yes, that's another website that I have. I've moved most stuff over to Life. I'm trying to build that brand now. Okay. I'm trying to really look at a possibility of reaching people with some spiritual nourishment from animals and not just dogs, believe it or not, even though I'm known as a dog guy, but I love all animals. So I'm trying to like build a uh, communication platform that will kind of link a spiritual foundation to what we can learn from animals.
1: Right. So can you share with us uh, if there's more around why people might reach out to you? So my understanding is the public speaking, pretty much motivational speaking. If they want your chaplain services or pet loss counseling, other other pieces to the work you do, it just seems so vast on your website.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of different video series on my website, too, that are are there. I have a weekly video that I put out, which is all centered around spirituality from animals. Uh, I try to support rescues. I have my own rescue, but I have this belief that rescues should really work together. They need some support and help, and I'm trying to develop a program to help them. So, um, that would be another thing, just supporting rescues right they have some wonderful work. I mean, these people are battle weary from what they do. I have a small rescue, but I know a lot of people who do a whole lot more, and um they they really have you know the the term has become almost overused now, but compassion fatigue it's become a huge thing for these people that do so much in rescue
1: yeah, compassion fatigue is. Also known in the helping professions as well. And I think it's very similar in the animal rescue field.
0: Yes, exactly. There's a, there's a parallel for sure.
1: Yep. Compassion fatigue, also known as secondary trauma um, or vicarious trauma.
0: Vicarious trauma. Exactly. Right.
1: Okay. Fantastic. Hey, before we wrap up, I would love to hear from you. Any advice you might have for somebody who is listening right now who might be going through a tough time on their own or dealing with depression.
0: Well, you know, again, coming off of Saturday and you know, there'll be another day, I don't know when it's going to be, but I you know, I I think the first thing to do is as I've recommended to people in in different areas of concerns they have, we talked about pet loss, is to first you know, just affirm, listen, it's okay that I, it, this isn't the end of the world that I'm feeling this way. And uh, as I'm talking to you, I'm talking to myself, right? So (laughs) I'm going back to Saturday and I'm saying, Yeah, Joe, you should have just said to yourself, Look, I'm going to get through this. It's okay. I mean, I've had days like this and it'll be okay. I'm I'm not, it's not the end of the world. I'll be okay. I'll be better later. You know, I I think to at least affirm and say, It's okay that I'm feeling this way, but I'm going to be better and have that kind of positive outlook you know, and, and that's what animals do for me, especially Daniel. Now he's the one dog that I live with. And he, I really believe he survived that gas chamber because he had this, he has this incredible positive attitude, like 24 seven. He really does. I've never seen a dog like him. And, uh, you know, we can do that too, if we work hard enough at it and just try to, you know, pull ourselves up a little bit.
1: Right. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you, So much, Joe. Thank you for the work you do. And thank you for your time on The Depression Files.
0: Well, I appreciate uh, very much uh, being part of it. And thank you for all you're doing, because I know you're uh, helping a lot of people just by putting these stories out there. So thank you for what you do.
1: Right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh, make sure you stay healthy. Same to you. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.